two, three, two, sorry, hold on. The winery can be reached at 923-2429 or by email andrew at brycelandvineyards.com. The time is 7 o'clock. This is Redwood Community Radio, KMUD Garberville, KMUE Eureka, KLAI Laytonville. KMUD would like to thank our underwriters, Humboldt Brand, with decades of knowledge in cultivation and extraction, representing over 100 local farms, offering compilation, sorry, compliance consultation, branding and packaging design, increased distribution channels, manufacturing, and networking events. Humboldt Brand is your local team, located at 823 Redwood Drive in Garberville. For more information, their number is 923-9560 or info at thehumboldtbrand.com. By farmers for farmers. And the views and opinions expressed throughout the broadcast day on Redwood Community Radio are those of the speaker, and not necessarily the station, its staff, or underwriters. Time is made available for all sorts of points of view at all sorts of times. It's best to be on topic when you call into a special purpose talk show, however. Speaking of special purpose talk shows, we've got Ask Your Herb Doctor. And we have the doctors in the house. Well, welcome to this month's Ask Your Herb Doctor. My name's Andrew Murray. My name's Sarah Johannesson Murray. Uh, this is the uh, May 15th, 2020 uh, edition of the show. And um, for those people who haven't tuned into the show before, it's a third Friday of the month live call-in show um, from 7 to 8 p.m., and um, we're both licensed medical herbalists uh, with a degree in herbal medicine. Uh, we manufacture and produce herbal tinctures and uh, do dietary supplementation consultations. Um, the radio shows have been running here for probably the last 16 years, uh, and our uh, very esteemed colleague, friend, mentor, Dr. Pete, um, has been joining us for the last uh, 12 years, I think now, or 10 years at least. It's 10 to 11 years. 
Okay. Yes, okay. 2008, I think, he was on the show with us. Okay, so uh, first of all, it's um, Bob P. are you with us? Yes. Okay, well, thanks so much for your time. Uh, before I kind of get into the meat of the uh, show this evening, uh, for those people who may have never heard your name or read any of your work, would you just give an outline of your academic and professional background? Um, uh, yeah, uh, my um, uh, graduate school in biology was 1968 to 72, uh, uh, majoring uh, in uh, physiology and biochemistry and doing a, a dissertation on reproductive aging and oxidative metabolism. Uh, before that, I, I was in a humanities uh, master's degree uh, with a thesis on William Blake, for example, and taught, taught uh, many humanities uh, courses before uh, specializing in biology. You're, uh, I, I'm not sure I've ever really come across anybody quite as prodigious uh, in terms of their writing and their work looking at uh, information that you want to uh, be more objective about rather than taking um, just the news for the news' sake. And I know uh, we'll get in later on into a little bit of the uh, war on fake news, quote-unquote. Um, but your work has always been seeking to get the truth from the situation, and they've always coined that phrase, uh, you know, whilst truth is getting their shoelaces on, the lie has already got around the world. Um, I think we we had our show back in March. We missed April's, uh, but the March show was the kind of the beginning of the ramping up of the coronavirus here in the U.S., uh, and March's show um, kind of brought out some of the truth or some of the lies or some of the conspiracies, if you like, because at that point in time, we didn't know as much as we do now with the data that's coming out. And that's something that I want to get into in terms of the numbers and the relevance and the statistics, uh, the lies and the damn statistics, as it were. Um, but I wanted to, wanted to look at the beginning of the show um, with some of the failings of the understanding of the uh, coronavirus and its um, mortality for some people. And... Um, Back in April, we didn't have our show, but we've got a good friend who's a um, liver surgeon, and he actually was doing some work down at Los Angeles at one of the hospitals there. Um, and he was saying that he had not seen the type of lung damage that he had seen. Uh, and he was kind of concerned. Obviously, he's a medical professional. He was very concerned about it. Um, and he mentioned to us um, a couple of procedures that, he said he was going to bring bring forward as a um, you know as a point to discuss to see whether or not that would be a relative treatment. And I actually saw it whilst looking at today's um, show and the outline and the information around those things we're going to talk about. I wanted to uh, discuss some of these things uh, and run them by you. I know that the the, the whole ventilator lack of ventilator uh, issue has been something that's been a political hot potato here. And, um, what, what I actually found was that ventilation actually may be a large part of the problem. Um, he, he mentioned this, the liver surgeon friend, he mentioned uh, ECMO, which is uh, extracorporeal um, membrane oxygenation. He said it was used uh, in other situations where the heart and the lungs needed to be given rest, just like um, 
uh, patients on life support machine would be put on life support and therefore they wouldn't have to do the physical demanding hard work of breathing and pumping their blood because most patients in that critical state just don't have the energy for it. And um, so he brought out that he was going to talk about ECMO as a possible procedure. And then when I started looking at some of the articles surrounding a very impassioned um, video that a uh, New York uh, emergency physician called Dr. Cameron Kyle Seidel um, spoke on for six minutes um, just about the problems that they were having in the critical care section that he was running and that patients were just dying uh, on ventilators and that the concept of the disease, uh, the clinical picture, the, the radiographic picture that looked like a pneumonia was not responding to the treatment that would typically be uh, used in place for pneumonia and that actually most patients were, were dying from ventilation. And I know you've always uh, mentioned that the blood oxygen saturation that most people can measure with a finger monitor at home and which are monitored in any admittance to a hospital. Uh, you know, your blood oxygen is measured and it's typically around 98 or 99%. You've always said that anything um, down to 90 is not a problem and that you, would, you have always been an advocate for preventing uh, you know, forcible oxygenation uh, of a patient because they're at 90 or 92, you say it's unnecessary. And I, I, I tend to agree with you on that basis that the, the doctor in New York said that some people that were being admitted <laughs> had a blood oxygen of down to 40. And what was puzzling him the most um, was that they weren't uh, in a state of delirium. They didn't have a racing heart. Um, they didn't have any of the symptoms of the shock of having such low um, blood oxygen. And that, um, because it was their policy to use ventilators, and I'll bring this out a little later, how the hospitals are being paid uh, for this process, um, that these patients were actually dying rather than being uh, sustained. And that there are several other methods for treating people with very low uh, blood oxygen levels that are part and parcel of the you know, the kind of complications of COVID when people get into a serious, uh, you know, life and death situation with it. So I wanted to talk to you about uh, ventilation and what your uh, perception on that being a problem uh, with people is. Uh, I saw one doctor uh, recently on the Internet saying, uh, I, I think he said 92% saturation was uh, the level at which they would uh, stuff a tube into the patients, and uh, that happens to be the uh, percent that I like to keep myself at as much as possible. Uh, I, I think it's a, a sign of relaxation uh, using your your oxygen uh, efficiently. Uh, but uh, I suspect that there are uh, lots of mistakes being made just in measuring uh, blood oxygen. Your, your mention of the ECMO, uh, it, it can be uh, the, the solution uh, if it's done vein to vein, uh, but when they involve uh, an artery, uh, the amount of invasion uh, to connect a machine to arterial blood uh, is so damaging uh, that they have a very high mortality rate. Uh, 
uh, a doctor in Germany, uh, Gattinoni, uh, advocates uh, using only a nasal cannula to give oxygen, and uh, he's very conventional in using uh, just oxygen, no carbon dioxide, uh, but he compared two hospitals in Germany, one doing uh, the thing that everyone is recommending uh, in the U.S. and Europe, uh, 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 tube uh, forced respiration. And uh, they, that hospital doing everything standard had a 60% mortality rate in the intensive care. And the hospital that was... Uh, Trying his method, uh, just a nasal cannula had zero percent mortality, both in Germany, uh, uh, in the same city, uh, not far apart. Uh, uh, if that is a general uh, uh, thing, that the, the tremendous mortality, uh, uh, one survey uh, found that 88 percent of, of the hospitals they checked. Uh, Eighty-eight uh, percent of the patients were dying in the intensive care unit uh, in the, the group that they uh, surveyed. Uh, so, uh, some some hospitals had a hundred percent mortality in the intensive care when they ventilated them, but eighty-eight uh, percent is, is a horrible success rate. Uh, um, in in until the nineteen forties. Uh, a mixture of carbon dioxide and oxygen was available uh, for fire department uh, uh, resuscitation and for hospital use. But theories, uh, unsupported uh, theories of how respiration works, mm -hmm. uh, knocked that out so that uh, it's very rare in the hospital now uh, to see the use of carbon dioxide or to even question the idea of pumping oxygen in. For example, they, they give stroke patients hyperventilation often for the purpose of shrinking brain blood vessels to reduce pressure. And a few people over the last 50 years have been pointing out that what all hospitals practically are doing is biologically irrational, uh, toxic, destroying the lungs, uh, damaging the brain, and so on. Uh, yeah, the, uh, the the um, the article was saying how sensitive and how fragile uh, the membranes that the membranes of the alveoli were particularly fragile, some of the most fragile membranes in the body, and that to force under any pressure uh, oxygen and or mixed oxygen uh, into that. It was really very unscientific and irrational, and that what you what you said a moment ago kind of hits a nail on the head. That it's not until these kind of things happen and that thinking people start to question the uh, regular approach that they've been told is the standard medical care. Uh, it's not until they question it because they see people dying that anything happens. It, it just takes death. And uh, this particular doctor this, this, this basically was almost in tears. I could tell how emotional he was about it. And he's just seeing people just dying left and right. And he's saying that there's hundreds of thousands of people who are just basically worldwide dying because no one's paying any attention to the fact that these people don't need forced mechanical ventilations in most of the cases. 
uh, rather than, as you mentioned, the things like the nasal cannula where they just, um, the, the oxygen just flows there close to the nose and people breathe as normally. And then mentioned also the, uh, the proning, uh, getting patients lying on their stomach. And this is really only for people that are presenting with dramatically low oxygen and um, ultimately they're in a really bad critical state. But that laying, laying flat on your stomach and then having a nasal cannula here, um, they said it brought the oxygen levels from 40% up to 80 to 90%, which is quite, quite acceptable and made the patients feel much more, uh, much safer and much less uh, anxious and, and, and critical. And um, even putting them in a prone posture rather than supine uh, yeah. make a big difference. Yeah. And the few doctors who have mentioned the oddity of the type of uh, what some are calling pneumonia, uh, mm -hmm. the, the uh, uh, ground glass appearance, uh, uh, there is definitely water in the lungs, but in a, a distributed, uh, widespread way, not in pockets like an infection would cause. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, that some people have been uh, observing exactly that, but in sepsis and stress, uh, trauma, uh, any kind of serious trauma uh, that can lead to uh, uh, absorption of endotoxin uh, uh, will cause uh, shock lung, they call it, uh, or wet lung. Uh, the lung uh, fills up with water just from stress and trauma. Uh, so the... the, the uh, Virus can have very little to do with the so-called pneumonia, or the virus is known to infect several organs, including the intestine. And so if it starts in the intestine, they might not find anything in the nose and lung, but the intestine can be thoroughly infected, leading to sepsis and wet lung. What, what do you think about this? They, they also mentioned uh, the, the last kind of uh, treatment approach for oxygenation, that of hyperbaric oxygen treatment. Um, they mentioned that that was um, definitely useful um, in terms of uh, a one and a half or two atmosphere um, pressure. And the, chi the Chinese, again, I've got to be careful here by saying this is what the Chinese said because uh, everyone wants to throw the Chinese under the bus and say that they're disinformation and they're holding back the truth or they're uh, falsifying things. But they said that a Chinese, a Chinese study um, in March that came out, March 11th, they said they put the date on it. It was a paper in the Lancet. They said that 59% um, of the 191 COVID-19 patients in the study developed sepsis. And that sepsis was present in 100% of those who died, and it was the most commonly observed complication, followed by respiratory failure, um, acute respiratory distress syndrome, and heart failure. Um, so, uh, yeah, yeah the, the heart, uh, lungs, and intestine are the main uh, places that, that the virus in, infects. And, but the sepsis alone can, can cause uh, both heart and lung uh, symptoms uh, can can especially if your heart is already having problems. Uh, the, the sepsis intensifies, leads to heart failure, and uh, multiple organ failure is, is the standard endpoint of sepsis itself. Mm -hmm. And these ventilated 
patients get typically ventilated all the way to multiple organ failure. So I think treating sepsis is the first thing, but avoiding causing sepsis is even more important. Yeah. The way the so-called receptor, the ACE2 enzyme, angiotensin-converting enzyme number two, was discovered 20 years ago, and within three years, first it was discovered as a heart-protecting enzyme. If you knock out ACE2, the experimental animal gets an enlarged fibrotic heart and tends to die with heart disease. But if you keep the ACE2 active, that protects the heart. It's the ACE1 angiotensin itself, which causes the damage not only to the heart but to the lungs. And it was only three years after this essential angiotensin 2 angiotensin receptor, no, angiotensin converting enzyme number two was discovered to be a heart enzyme. It was discovered to be the so-called receptor for the coronavirus, the SARS coronavirus. And so the it was known to be an anti-inflammatory enzyme 17 years ago, and the Chinese were leaders. Several several groups around the world were trying out all kinds of anti-inflammatory treatments, including angiotensin receptor blockers as as treatment for SARS, and getting good results. So for 10 years now, several people have been reporting good results treating coronavirus infections with angiotensin receptor blockers and various anti-inflammatories. The Chinese, for example, most recently found good results from a serotonin receptor blocker, Sinanserin, and an antihistamine, Montelukast was the one they mentioned, and from two herbs, knotweed and sophora root. Both of those are anti-inflammatory. So the, the, you brought out um, Losartan. Yeah, there's two clinical trials that are being done, maybe even more by now, in the United States with Losartan treating this COVID-19. And that's the blood pressure-lowering drug that you're speaking about here, Dr. Peek. Uh, yeah. So that's good to know that there, I think it was in Michigan, they were doing some clinical trials with Losartan treating COVID patients. That's very good to hear. Um, in March, Lancet published one of the most horribly ignorant and dangerous articles I've seen in the literature. It's Fang or Fang, Roth, and Curaculicus are the authors, and March 11 in Lancet, and they warned the world 
against using exactly those things which are most protective, uh, with the angiotensin blockers. And yeah, and that was being circulated around doctors' offices because uh, my herbal colleague who works in a doctor's office was told, or all the nurses and all the doctors were briefed, that we are not allowed to prescribe our patients ACE inhibitors, and we have to take them off of the ACE inhibitor. And so when I heard that, I told her what you had said about the Losartan, the ACE inhibitor, actually being very useful and helpful in COVID patients and about the clinical trials that were being done in Michigan. She went and spoke to the doctor and got the information and got the literature in her hands, and she was so thankful and put all the patients that had been on Losartan back on Losartan, uh, or an ACE inhibitor-type drug. In March, two people who had been uh, confirmed that they had the coronavirus uh, asked me, uh, and I referred them to the Chinese studies, uh, and uh, two, two of them managed to get the Losartan, and they both said they felt better immediately and were entirely well the next day. Well, you're listening to us here at Dr. on KMD Garbaville 91.1 FM from 7.30 until the end of the show at 8 o'clock. You're invited to call in uh, with any questions related or unrelated, uh, hopefully related to the subject matter of the uh, current uh, outcry over COVID-19. Uh, the number is uh, you're in the area or out of the area as uh, 1-800-KMUD-RAD. Okay, so Dr. Pete, I also wanted to mention that um, the, um, the work that's been done looking at vitamin D as a very viable antiviral um, showed that the, they talked about, okay, because it's all tied in the um, black Americans being particularly susceptible to COVID-19 uh, and that ethnicity in general worldwide because of lower than usual vitamin D levels amongst these populations and that I know they revised the vitamin D level, the lower reference range, they wrote, raised it, they raised it um, about five, five points, I think, about two years ago. It used to be 20 or 25 and 30 now is considered, uh, nanograms per mil is considered to be uh, where you want to be for sure and preferably higher. Um, but the work that, this, that was done to look at um, antiviral effects, in particular against this coronavirus, said that between 30 and 60 more likely would give the best overall protection. And that... Um, Not only the, the revving up of the immune system to resist viral and bacterial infections, but uh, I, I think a major part of its effect is it's extremely important as an anti-inflammatory and, and since inflammation is what causes the sickness and death, uh, uh, vitamin D is, is one of our most important uh, anti-inflammatory weapons. Okay. And aspirin, not only anti-inflammatory, but it has a well-established broad-spectrum antiviral activity, and it's uh, been found protective in the coronavirus infections. Yeah, and our surgeon friend confirmed that, you know, these patients might not need the ventilation because it's not really helping if they have a completely wet, soggy lung. But then he went on to say very simple remedies like aspirin are really helping people because it's so anti-inflammatory. Um, uh, yeah, uh, 
the, the um, Kaiser Family Foundation uh, I saw uh, discussing the uh, funding, uh, uh, the, I think it's called CARES Act, uh, the, the Free Money uh, yeah. Act that was recently passed, uh, is increasing funding to hospitals. And according to the Kaiser Family Foundation, if a patient is admitted with a diagnosed coronavirus respiratory disease just going into the hospital, the hospital gets about $16,000. But if they're put on a ventilator, the amount is $48,000. So it's worth the hospital more than $30,000 just to kill the patient. Without being cynical, then, this is a little bit like the hospital seeing the quote-unquote free money and maybe some part and parcel why you don't hear of heart disease now or, you know, cardiac problems or pulmonary problems where everybody's got COVID-19 and they're getting admitted uh, to hospital under that diagnosis. And that's why these supposedly all of the other pathologies that are always out there, because you don't hear about them now, and they're suddenly related to coronavirus. Yes, suddenly very few people are, are dying of the usual things. <laughs> well, the other thing, too, I think what you mentioned, Dr. Pete, is that if the virus can be present in the intestine and not be in the nose, so they're doing these nasal swabs, and they might be getting a false negative as well. Right. So, I mean, not only is there a possibility of having a false positive with a nasal swab, there's a possibility of having a false negative, and that's why people need to request that they get the antibody test. And even those are, you know, there's only been one, I think, that's been approved by the FDA as of a and, days ago. And, and there has been a question about uh, the specificity of these antibody tests. Are they really uh, specific for uh, Corona, SARS-2, or, or are they responding just to some uh, general uh, old coronavirus? But we do know, I mean, obviously, if our surgeon friend said in the emergency room, they've never seen anything like this in medicine where the entire lung is wet and boggy from a viral infection, then there's something going on, but perhaps the numbers of those people are just not as uh, great as a number of diagnoses. That, that's been the statistical problem in evaluating truly what is the mortality rate and part and parcel of why the ramping up of the diagnosis has um, become a political, you know, a, a political objective. Um, I, I noticed the CDC's uh, chart of, of the uh, cases and, and deaths from influenza. Uh, it fell off like a cliff around <laughs> April 1st with a sudden lurch upward in corona diagnoses. It looked exactly like if you had just redefined influenza as corona, you could account for that uh, continuously smooth curve but, but, uh, with a disappearance suddenly of, of influenza to be replaced by corona. Doctors, uh, we have a caller. Okay, well, let's see, uh, let, let's see where we're going to go uh, with this first call. Let me just uh, put it out there again. You're listening to us, your herb doctor, Kami D. Garbable, 91.1 FM, uh, from now until the close of the show, 8 o'clock, we've got a live show with Dr. Raymond Peake joining us. 
Uh, the number is 707-923-3911. Okay, let's take this first call. The call away from, and what's your question? Hi, I'm from West Haven, and my name is Kirsten. And last time in the March show, Dr. Pete talked about a lab that was working on COVID vaccines that had recently had to close last year. And I was just wondering if he could repeat where that was, because I've looked and I couldn't find it. Okay. Um, uh, a lab? They were working on the what? You had mentioned that there was a lab that had to shut down, a bioweapons lab that had to oh, shut oh, down, I think. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, the... Um, uh, that particular one was uh, Fort Detrick, uh, but uh, there, there was one at the University of North Carolina working with them. Uh, I, I think that might have uh, been shut down, too, at the same time. That was a Nature article. I think it was November uh, 16 of uh, uh, 2015, uh, maybe. Uh, no, last year, uh, uh, the, the um, uh, it shut down for uh, uh, for sanitation. Did you say it was like having they weren't disposing of their waste properly, and they were letting wastewater go out that had live virus in it? Uh, yeah, but but that same lab had been previously closed for a moratorium on a particular kind of virus research because one group of virologists was saying this is intrinsically useless and dangerous and should be stopped. And in 2014, the government put a three-year moratorium on that kind of research. And that was within a few weeks. Uh, uh, Tony Fauci uh, took uh, $3.7 million to uh, fund the Wuhan lab to continue the research uh, that was considered uh, uh, questionable, uh, dangerous, uh, or even uh, 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 it was uh, def definitely illegal, and uh, some scientists were, were saying it was uh, uh, simply uh, uh, not not uh, anything that should ever be done. So they continued it in Wuhan until the accident or whatever it was uh, last September. So this is um, the doctor from the White House, the same doctor, Tony Fauci? Uh, uh, right. Uh, uh, he apparently ignored... Uh, uh, I, I don't know who who was supporting him, but uh, he was in charge of it, and he ignored the moratorium. I, I think uh, that would be criminal uh, to continue uh, the banned research uh, outside the U.S. where they could get away with it. Is this a gain-of-function uh, yeah. work? And yeah, and generally uh, it's necessary to create a chimera, a, a yeah. combination of of two totally different viruses uh, to get a, a really good uh, gain of function. And this was a process uh, developed over many years, uh, at least uh, uh, back until the, the 1960s, uh, uh, for military uh, uses. I, I think it was Nixon who ordered uh, the end of uh, biowarfare uh, virology 
and are continued under the guise of vaccine research. There was the same gain of function for mixing two moderately virulent strains of virus to produce one super virulent organism. The justification most recently was that if some enemy or terrorist created this super virulent virus, they needed to anticipate that and make a vaccine to this totally constructed organism so that they would be ready for the attack. And we've had the common cold for I don't know how many decades now, and I don't know how much money has been spent on research into the common cold, and we still get the common cold. So quite how, I don't quite understand the rationale. Well, it's, it's not rational. It's completely irrational how that kind of uh, organization comes into being with government money on the basis that it's going to do some tangible good. I just don't get it. Uh, yeah, yeah, the virology uh, community was violently divided uh, one half working uh, w- with the government, the other uh, saying it, it's crazy and criminal uh, because uh, uh, that, that one lab, Fort Detrick, uh, had over a thousand uh, leaks uh, or accidents uh, in a period of, of just a few years, uh, more, more than a thousand documented uh, violations of normal uh, safety procedures. And finally, uh, it was last year that they were uh, uh, shut down. But uh, the, um, the, the dangerous research had been resumed in 2017 at the time it was shut down in, in 2019. So Wuhan had been the source of it for three years, then it came back. Now, this is where you mentioned Dr. Fauci uh, was um, financially um, part of a deal made and headed headed up uh, you know, his, his arrival uh, to Wuhan as part of a U.S. delegation, if that's the right word, but he actually went there and um, was instrumental in being part of the team that were involved in this trans- transference to this laboratory and that so far as the public are concerned and the newsreel is concerned and that whole cycle um this apparently originated at this lab but that i know that's a little controversial too do we know who <clears throat> pardon me do we know who gave the 3.7 million i, I didn't hear that i think it was 2.7 but anyway do you know do you know who the Hey, Mud. Uh, it was government money. Okay. Uh, please listen online. There's somebody ahead of you. I'm sorry. Listen on the phone here, and there's somebody ahead of you. Okay. Are there any callers on the at the moment? Yes, we've got two callers. Here's the first yeah, one. Okay. Let's let's take a break and go and uh, check these callers. Uh, caller, you're on the air. Where are you from? What's your question? Hello, you're on the air. What's your question? Where are you from? From, go ahead. Where are you from? What's no, the question? No, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. 
Caller, you're listening on the radio instead of your phone, so you lost your chance. Here's the next caller. Okay, caller. Yeah. you're on the app. I am. Where are you from? What's your question? I, my name is James. I'm calling from Arizona, and I have a friend who's 39 years old, and he supposedly died of this super virus. And I think what happened is he just got ventilated before the doctors realized that it wasn't very helpful. But my question is, it seems that he had a lot of emotional stress from uh, work problems. And could that make somebody who's relatively young and otherwise healthy more susceptible to uh, this kind of virus? Dr. Pete, stress in general to anybody is not helpful, but what do you... uh... Uh, Emotional stress. This angiotensin system uh, is uh, responsive to stress and emotions. So it's the very thing that would be ramped up in in the presence of stress and, um, yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, here's another caller. Okay. All right. Caller, you're on the air. Thank you. Hi, I'm from the Mendocino area. Um, On on the low sartan, I was under the impression that that particular medication affects the ACE1 inhibitors and that the virus attacks the receptor sites of ACE2. I'm going to hang up and listen off the air. Yeah, that was uh, right to front the first time around, I think. Uh, ACE2 is the enzyme that destroys angiotensin. Angiotensin acts on the angiotensin receptor number one. Uh, That's the uh, thing that activates uh, constriction of blood vessels, inflammation of blood vessels, uh, fibrosis of the heart, and so on. All of the bad stuff is activated at angiotensin receptor 1 by angiotensin. And the receptor is a protein, ACE2, which is not an angiotensin receptor. They call it a virus receptor, but its function in the body is to primarily to destroy angiotensin, the toxic signal, and convert it, it converts it into a beneficial uh, uh, form called angiotensin 1 to 7, uh, the toxic uh, angiotensin called, called angiotensin 2. Uh, the structure of it is uh, r- really angiotensin 1 to 8, uh, and the, uh, the thing they call the receptor of the virus uh, is able to trim the toxic angiotensin molecule into a, a one unit shorter, angiotensin 1 to 7, which does just the opposite of everything. It's anti-fibrotic, uh, anti-blood tension, uh, uh, anti-all uh, kinds of inflammation, uh, uh, balances the hormones, uh, and so on. It's very good stuff, but the, the uh, virus Sticking to that uh, protein uh, uh, limits its ability to detoxify. Uh, And so uh, the receptor blockers are uh, able uh, to uh, reduce the 
inflammation enough that the body can increase its production of ACE2. Even even though the virus attaches to ACE2? Is that what you're saying? Uh, What was that? You said when people take the ACE1 inhibitor, right, because that's what isn't losartan, the angiotensin inhibitor. Angiotensin receptor inhibitor, number one. There's also an angiotensin receptor number two, but that is uh, losartan doesn't bother that one, and that one has some protective effects too. So losartan is blocking the bad effects of angiotensin and at the same time allowing the body to increase the production of ACE2 enzyme, the protective destroyer of angiotensin. Well, we have a full board. So do we, uh, do we get this next caller on the air? Caller, you're on the air. Where are you from? What's your question? Um, from Portland. And uh, my question is, can uh, UV light or ozone used to be used to disinfect uh, the air? Uh, could you cycle air through, like, say, on a, on a jet airliner, run the, uh, the air through some sort of ultraviolet disinfection? I, I couldn't hear that. <clears throat> he was wondering if ozone would be helpful. Oh, I'm or UV. UV. I think both of those would be risky. The risk would be increasing inflammation. The idea medically is always to kill the invader, but the successful treatments so far have been ignoring the virus. The standard medical thinking is it's the... Uh, replication of the virus uh, that causes all of the problems, uh, but uh, actually it's the inflammation that leads to the replication of the virus. And so if you stop the inflammation, uh, you really don't have to worry about the virus. Okay, so you're saying that it's not so critical to think about sterilizing the air and sterilizing the body. Oh, uh, that, that, that's fine to uh, uh, sterilize the, the air, but not you can't sterilize the inside of the body. No, no, right. oh, no, no. That's, I was talking about uh, sterilizing air like uh, in an enclosed public space to, uh, to you know, run the air through some kind of UV filter uh, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, as yeah, it recirculates to kill any airborne virus. Uh, yeah, yeah. Some people are are advocating uh, treating the blood with with ozone and such, but uh, that could re- uh, intensify the inflammation. Okay, here's okay. our next caller. Yeah, just take the next caller. Caller, you on the air? Uh, where are you from? And what's your question? From Connecticut, and I uh, just two questions. Uh, one is the thoughts on the use of lactoferrin as an antiviral antimicrobial. The second question is if anything you can do to protect against adjuvants in vaccines. Uh, on the second part, um, uh, again, uh, uh, anti-inflammatories uh, are 
protective against everything. But once you've injected aluminum into the muscle, for example, you're going to have lifelong effects of that. Aluminum in the muscle has unpredictable effects. Often particles are sent up the nerve fiber from the muscle to the brain, transported in a specific way into the brain where they cause continuing amplification of the inflammation. So I wouldn't encourage anyone to think that they can protect themselves from an aluminum-containing injection. The first question was what? Lactoferrin as an antimicrobial and antiviral? He's asking about lactoferrin as an antimicrobial. Probably the natural protein of the milk system and of the intrinsic immune system. We've got all sorts of defensive things that if you're in good health, good vitamin D status and vitamin A status will make these things, and they're probably safe to supplement. Okay, caller. Thank, thank you for your question. I don't know if you are. Michael, is there any other callers on the line? Or? No, no, there's not, although I'll mention that in the hallway here at KMUD, we have sort of a filter unit with the fan in it, and it has a glowing blue light in it that I assume is UV to sort of filter the air throughout the day here. Okay, you're listening to Ask Your Dr. KMUD, 91.1 FM. Uh, from now until 8 o'clock, you're invited to call in. The number's one seven zero seven. Nine two three three nine one one. Okay, Dr. P, uh, let's quickly get into some of the... Uh, I know we've mentioned some of the um, inherent issues with ventilation, and we've mentioned, obviously, better protocols that I think are being called out for now by several physicians around the country. Um, you mentioned, or I, we mentioned vitamin D, definitely. Uh, with vitamin C, and I also mentioned the uh, skullcap, the Chinese skullcap route was uh, very useful in Chinese clinical trials for preventing uh, this cytokine storm. Uh, so that's from an herb uh, perspective. Uh, and then vitamin C was brought out again as well as being, uh, you know, a, a, a compound that would be antiviral and uh, anti-inflammatory in its own right. So from the perspective of... Uh, the information, disinformation uh, surrounding this whole thing. I think what is becoming obvious, there's several things. Um, number one, that the war against fake news is being taken up by Facebook uh, and other social media platforms that are now really, I think, and this is all part and parcel in acquiescing to Chinese uh, interests. Um, so any, any, uh, any content that questioned or contradict that kind of edicts of the World Health Organization is now being blocked. Uh, it's been taken down, tagged as fake news, like I said, on you know, Twitter or um, Facebook and YouTube. Um, and I don't quite know how this happens in a free and democratic society. I think it's the beginning of all of it, is that in a demo true democracy, you have, you have the people on the street corner shouting and complaining about whatever it is. And, and if you want to listen to it and do something, 
you can, but when it's silenced, that really isn't a free society anymore. That's a draconian dictatorship that pushes its news and its narrative. And, um, you know, the whole thing about uh, a lot of right-wing programs and news, etc., that's been targeted uh, because of the pushback against President Trump, um, that part and parcel of a social media platform is creating a new era of a kind of Orwellian control where if you don't have the people shouting on the street corners, even if they sound crazy or they are crazy, um, they've got to have their they've got to have their right to speech, their freedom of speech, which is all part and parcel of the Constitution. And I think we're seeing when they mention the Orwellian kind of takeover uh, of the social media platforms that everybody's plugged into now, hopefully will unplug from. Um, but what do you think about that, Dr. Pete? All, all of the networks, uh, uh, NBC in particular, MSNBC, uh, National Public Radio uh, is being very offensive. Uh, you can tell uh, some powers are, are being threatened uh, by the uh, questioning the safety of vaccines. Uh, and so even NPR is starting to slander uh, science dissenters. Uh, and we have a caller. Okay. Okay, we've got eight minutes. So let's take this caller. Caller, you're on the air. Where are you from? What's your question? Hi. Um, this is Joan, and I'm in Arcata. And uh, I've, for probably 30 years, used water fasting to... Um, Come, you know, to tame down any inflammation of any kind of virus that I've gotten. And I haven't heard any mention of water fasting, especially immediately when somebody gets sick. Uh, I haven't heard any mention of anybody using this extremely simple uh, way of keeping disease under control. Uh, uh, yeah, that has been used for autoimmune diseases. Uh, very successfully, uh, and uh, the, the reactions, uh, the inflammatory reactions uh, they're seeing overlap very strongly with, with autoimmune uh, diseases. So, you, so you, you're, in, you're in agreement with that? Right. Yeah. Okay. Well, there you go, caller. All right, let's uh, let's carry on. I think that answered the caller's question. I think that there was no controversy about it. And I, here, here's the thing, Dr. Pete. I know you don't advocate drinking water anyway <laughs> in terms of uh, it being a fairly uh, fairly inert product that you could better spend drinking a nutritious product. Um, but okay, but that's probably for another time. Um, so getting, getting back to the lack of or the decreasing public freedom uh, to both dissent and demand a platform uh, for free speech. I find that very worrying, and I, I don't find it hard to conceive of it being not a conspiracy theory, but actually playing into the hands of government. And um, I've always said that the government are there for us to do our bidding, um, and that our right as a citizen and our duty as a citizen, as a citizen is to maintain our uh, right over the government, and not in terms of breaking the law, but in terms of directing policies, etc. So, do you uh, do you fear what's happening in terms of this outbreak and the stay-at-home measures and the fear and uh, all of the rest of the uh, negative things that are causing people to lose their freedoms and lose their interaction and lose their, not to mention lose their job and their money 
and that's another whole subject, but the economic fallout from this is pretty dis- disastrous. People have, have traced back the funding origins of Google and the social media and found that the CIA was the crucial seed money and guiding money for the creation of these things. So the government has been, even though they're technically private organizations, they are guided by and responsible to the CIA and Pentagon. Yeah, that seems to make that seems to make uh, sense. It's very very disturbing. I think what's what's happening with with this, but I think it's part and parcel, unfortunately, uh, of having such a huge population that are unpredictable in terms of governments wanting stability to uh, quote unquote join everybody in a one world order uh, and stamp out Ill, you know illegal activity etc. With the whole cashless society, that's another question. The the whole uh, discussion about Paper money being a, um, uh, a transmitter of <laughs> coronavirus on the surface of cash, and that being a reason why they need to outlaw it. Again, it's all part and parcel of uh, taking everything into their own hands. True. Into the government's hands by basically producing yet another level uh, of control they, over society. They tried it out a few years ago in India, and there were thousands of deaths because. Uh, people c- couldn't get the electronic money because they banned cash at that point. Uh, yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, we've only got a couple of minutes left, so I do thank you for your time and let me let people know uh, how they can find out more about you in the closing minutes. Okay. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Good night. Okay. So for people that have listened to the show, um, they are on the archive of KMUD. Uh, at kmud.org. Uh, they only they only last about six weeks to two months, I think, before they're erased. Uh, but the, a lot of the transcripts have been put up on YouTube uh, and also on our website, westernbotanicalmedicine.com. Uh, I got everything up until including 2017, but have yet to put up uh, the last three years nearly. I know it's a little... Uh, disappointing, but okay. So, for those people who've listened uh, to the show and want to find out more about Dr. Ray Pete, his website is raypeat r a y p e a t dot com. Uh, he's written a lot of articles about a lot of different uh, pathologies, he called them, uh, and very good ways of treating them that are based in science and not on the normal science that we would hear from mainstream medicine. So, well worth listening to as a source of very good, impartial, and objectively, scientifically rational. Uh, information and um, we thank him very much for being so willing to give his time over these last 12 years Um, if people want to check us out uh, we're both medical herbalists and we run a business called Western Botanical Medicine Uh, and the third Friday of every month is when we do these radio shows it's basically alternative alternative medicine with science underpinning it so for those who've listened uh, thank you for your time and next month uh, third Friday of June. Uh, We'll be back from 7 to 8 p.m. And uh, I thank you. My name's Andrew Murray. My name's Sarah Johannesson-Murray. Thank you. Support comes from Redwood Coast Energy Authority, which wants the community to know there are a variety of resources to help customers pay their bills, find the right rate plan, and manage their energy uses during the current crisis. Visit redwoodenergy.org for complete details or call 707- 
269-1700 for more information. And the Gene Lucas Community Center has been setting up a lot of, setting up, seeing a lot of community come out and join the trails and campus at 3000 Newburgh Road in Fortuna. There are finished trails additions in Newburgh Park to the McLean 